Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lyra podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best of comic books, graphic novels, mangas, and sometimes not the best or the worst or the middle in betweens. We're still workshopping that opening. Uh, with me, uh, I'm your host, soon to be known as Comic Standard. With me, as always, is my Hoovian co-host, Jamie. I'm not a fucking Hoovian. Well, you know I'm not a Hoovian. That's how we get to the subject. Is first question: Do you count yourself a Hoovian? And no. now the answer is no, which is fair enough. Do you? I I would say I used to be by the strictest like definition of the word like yeah. I definitely used to follow and definitely used to follow it and then I mean we're, we're gonna get into it but that was a quick way to get us close to the subject I remember when I was a kid like there was a friend whose house I stayed at a lot and I would often be there on Saturday evenings and his mum made bomb ass fresh pizza um he'll know who he is he'll know who he is his mum made banging fresh pizzas and we would sit and eat pizza and they would always put doctor who on this was like eccleston era doctor right. who so i i consumed a lot of that and i've always thought that david tennant is a god among men mm, yes one of <laughs> one of the best actors credible actor wonderful human being mm. um and so i've seen a bit of the like like because there was a crossover with billy piper wasn't there there was a there was a bit where at, like um eccleston's doctor had left but billy piper was still hanging about and then david tennant spent some time with her as a companion i think she he? did a whole season with tennant so did i think she, she did a whole d season with him. two seasons one with eccleston one with tennant but then after she hadn't been in it for a while she then came back for like a oh my god rose is back what's going on and that kind of thing um because i think david tennant and billy piper's chemistry on screen was banging like they 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 were a really good pairing do you know what i mean yeah and it was interesting going off the the switch from eccleston to like transfer mm. that chemistry which i think they did quite successfully yeah because again her and eccleston were great on screen together weren't they exactly he was a good doctor eccleston is the best doctor in my opinion i think i know tennant is the 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 favorite and i absolutely see why like i'm not gonna I'm not going to go against anyone who says Tennant's their favourite. I like Matt Smith. Matt Smith was good as well. I, what I liked about Eccleston was he brought a lot of more of like the undercurrent raw like anger and violence that was like simmering under the... Because what the Doctor's been through, especially by this point, was a, justifiably enough to be like traumatised and angry about. And I, he had that simmering just under the surface while having like a goofy smile on the top, which I think is like quintessential doctor really yeah i mean he was the because bear in mind um for anybody who doesn't know anything about doctor who doctor who is a, a children's tv show from like the 60s and 70s yeah originally yeah and then they brought it back in the 2000s it had gone away for a long time hadn't it and so it was really really keenly awaited by an adult audience who remembered being terrified by doctor who as children and i think eccleston was perfect mm. for that purpose like a really great very gruff but also quite charming northern actor yeah and i think the doctor historically had always been southern hadn't he he'd always had a bbc accent that sounds true i don't i haven't checked it so i don't know but it sounds correct yeah i think i think i think they'd all at least even if some of the actors had played him had been northern they'd all been doing the bbc thing of using received pronunciation right which in the 60s and 70s was like kind of mandate for being on the bbc wasn't it yeah yeah if you're on the beeb you're well spoken yeah and then christopher eccleston obviously incredibly articulate but northern mm. and for our american listeners that's a big deal in the uk there is a divide between the north and the south and i saw a map the other day ryan mm. i saw a map the other day that made me so happy it was the north south divide is represented by the density of waitrose 
And obviously in the south, particularly in the south around London, you couldn't see the map for all the pins where all the waitros were. And then there's like five in the north and one in Scotland. And I really wanted to then also put all the Gregs on a map because you'd see the same thing happen in reverse. I think that used to be the case, but I don't think that's any more. I mean, I don't I don't know what the the real actual density in the north of Greg's is. The stereotype, it's a lot. Oh my God, Ryan. When I lived in Leeds, you would buy a Greg sausage roll, walk in any direction, and before you would finish that Greg sausage roll, there was another Greg's. Well, it's no, you can't imagine how dense, like the north is lousy with them. But we have also increased volume in Greg's. Is we what have, I'm yeah. I don't yeah. think we've matched the North yet, but it, it's definitely gone up. The dizzying pa- pastry heights mm. of the North of England. And at one point, Norwich had two Greg's facing opposite each other. It For did. a short time, we did. So Yeah, I mean, they were moving one into the other. We were technically the most northern southern city. I mean, we kind of are the most northern southern city. A bit city. geographically, yeah. But in like, that moment, culturally, we were as well. This has become very parochial. <laughs> yes. And for anyone who didn't guess, if anyone was just somehow tuned in all of a sudden, we are talking about Doctor Who uh, oh, this yeah, week. Yeah, I know we are. Do you know what the worst thing is? I signed off on this. <laughs> I mean, I did say, I, I asked you, it wasn't like a, hey, we should do this because it's the 60th anniversary. I was like, do you want to do Doctor Who? And you were like, yeah, I think I might have something to say. And then I read the comic and was like, I have nothing to say. <laughs> now see, what's interesting is, I actually rather enjoyed the comic. Did you? I did. And I, I mean, I've got the points to make about it, and we're going to get into it. Um, but first up top is the 60th anniversary of Doctor mm. Who. They're doing a big special. David Tennant's back. Big old thing. And you said earlier about seeing it as a bit of as a kid. Is that your extent? Your um, extent with the franchise? That, and I listened to quite a lot of Chameleon Circuit as a teenager. Scandal noted. Mm. Do you know who Chameleon Circuit no. were? They were a band of YouTubers, not like a roving band of YouTubers, a band of musicians on YouTube. Right. Who made a band called Chameleon Circuit where they exclusively sang songs about Doctor Who. So you you gained knowledge of the the lore from this uh, from this band. Yeah, absolutely, but we have to we can't if anybody is familiar with Chameleon Circuit, they will know that it had Alex Day in it. Scandal noted. I don't know if you know who Alex Day is. I do not. Do we want to bring up on the podcast or not? Um, I mean, no. Like, it's not important, but... If you want to know, you can find out. You can Google. But it also had Charlie McDonald in it. Who's that? Charlie is so cool. Like, you'll remember her. Um, She was a really, really popular British YouTuber in the late noughties. I mean, maybe. No um, guarantees. Like, no guarantees that I would recognise her. Oh, yeah. No, maybe not. Um, So she played a ukulele, made funny videos on YouTube. Okay. Um, But she was kind of one of the progenitors of like she she was one of the first to hit like a million subs um she was friends with the vlog brothers she was yeah she was just a a prominent vlogger back in the day but she was in chameleon circuit as well fair enough well me personally i did jump on board in the 2005 eccleston revival yeah. and was a bit avid of it then I, I do think that was good doctor who back then although i had never seen any of it from beforehand so i can't compare to that i'm definitely a new who fan i think is the phrase whereas new for old who yeah new whovian versus Nuvian Hoovian. yeah i don't know do we have do we have that for star wars like the the, the obviously you got like the sequel fans versus the prequel fans versus the original trilogy fans i mean i think what's wild is that gen z have now kind of 
become come of age enough that we're listening to their opinions enough and they're all saying prequels were good we liked them <laughs> yeah but yeah like i i enjoyed the prequels when i saw them as a kid as well but you have to acknowledge like just because you enjoyed it as a kid there's a lot of things i enjoyed as a kid that i am fully willing to say now they're objectively not that good eating breakfast but, but <laughs> eating breakfast <laughs> something that you enjoyed as a child that you no longer do now have occasional breakfast. I mean, it's not the best meal you could be having per day. Yeah. Yeah. No. You're you're a fairly you're a fairly big no breakfast advocate. I would say. I think I think yeah. that's like one of I your mean, core personality facets. But also put it this way: breakfast is awesome to have in the moment. Like, there's nothing better than waking up going, oh, immediate food. Yeah. But your body's no. like, what is this immediate food bollocks? Like, we <laughs> we had thousands of years where we breakfast was not a thing. I've I, not even pooped yet. Why are mm. you giving me more food? Unless you woke up next to like a bush of berries or something, <laughs> like there was no breakfast. <laughs> unless some, unless an animal had mis- mis- mysteriously died next to you while you slept, and you woke up and you're like, well, I guess this is breakfast now. I like the fact that I said you didn't, you weren't that into breakfast anymore, and you were like, oh, I'm into breakfast, and well, then I just instantly feel- started talking about all the reasons you think breakfast is balls. Because there's a di- <laughs> there's some people who naturally just don't eat breakfast yeah like i actually have to make it i don't know why we're on this now from doctor who but i made the choice of being like <laughs> i guess i'll eliminate breakfast and see how i get on with that and it worked well for me but some people just like forget bre- some people forget meals i do not know considering i've like don't have a, one of the three main ones i don't know how anyone could forget a meal when you say some people forget meals you're talking about me aren't you i was gonna call that. you out because i'm a nice <laughs> i'm a nice co-host <laughs> yeah i forget to eat but i think that's because i'm neurodivergent mate <laughs> i think yeah, that's because your I'm a stomach's bit special. still sending like the same signals to yeah, your head yeah but not really no like i don't i just forget to eat sometimes man that's see again that's alien to me because i'm always thinking about i i know always unless i'm in some insane scenario i know exactly what i'm gonna eat next you know unless the and even then if it's like you're going to a restaurant in the evening or something yeah that's like i know where i'm going to eat i know roughly what i'm gonna have even if i haven't picked out something from menu i'm not one of those people who looks at a menu online before you go because i'm just like why ruin the surprise for yourself? Like, sit down, pick up the menu. Oh, go, I thought Ooh. you would be one of those nah. people. I'm one of those people. Nah, sit down. When you sit down, you're you're taking in the you know the atmosphere of the restaurant, and everything. You pick up the menu, go. Ooh, look, look at that! What have they got here? You know? So we are in the process of booking our work Christmas meal because that's a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Not not that I'm thrilled about the whole concept. Of, you know, anyway. Um, and me and a colleague have been messaging about the menu in a place that we're going to eat in three weeks. Well, that's that's <laughs> different because they give you the menu because yeah. because you have to pre-order because you're a big booking. So that's different. Like I get like if you've got it, you then you might as well you know have a look at it and discuss it, or whatever. But I mean, like I mean, like when you're just going like with a family or friends or something, and someone's like, "Oh, I've just looked at the menu and they've got," and I'm like, "Why? You, like just leave it." Like, how do I know what I'm going to be hungry for? Just savor, savor the experience for when you get there. You know, it's like the opposite, not the opposite. It's a similar vein of like going to a landmark and everyone's just got their phones in front of them taking pictures. Like, oh god, uh, yeah. you could Google a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. You don't <laughs> need this picture on your phone. Do you know some of my friends? who are a bit younger than me like i've got some friends that are in that kind of they're like i'm i'm most definitely a young millennial they're kind of zillennials they're like right on the cusp like born in the like mid to late 90s and i got really annoyed at a bunch of people with their phones out at a concert the other day and my mate just looked at me and went you're such an old man like don't get you shouldn't be bothered by that and i was like but it's annoying for the same reason i'm like 
I could Google bootleg footage of the fucking Libertines from anywhere. Exactly. I get to see the Libertines maybe but once in my short lifetime, and I don't want to do that through the phone screen of the person in front of me. And the argument other people make, they're like, yeah, but, you know, later on in life, you forget the experience, but you have the memento of whatever the video you've taken or whatever. And then, fair enough photos of you with people you're hanging out with like yeah. friends you take a group shot with your friends you go I remember, you're 70 80 years old and you go, i remember then you know uh, that kind of yeah thing. yeah but people are like what if you forget seeing bloody the pyramids or whatever it's like if i don't remember <laughs> and you show me a photo that i didn't take <laughs> then i must just assume oh, I guess that's my, I guess I was there and I took that then. Yeah. Because you have nothing to compare. Like having a picture of something or like something you saw is not going to help when you don't have the memory of the original thing. And also like I I walked the Brooklyn Bridge, right? And that's actually quite a breathtaking experience. Like, you know, it was the first time I'd ever seen Manhattan and I saw it from the Brooklyn Bridge for the first time ever as you kind of start to descend upon it and you see the buildings rise and it's a really cool experience. No photograph that I would be able to take as a novice photographer would compare to that experience or even really bring me back to that experience. Like when you when you're witnessing something really special, like something truly objectively special from the Anthropocene, the pyramids are a great example, like a marvel of human a marvel of human engineering. I don't think your little like eight by ten that you took on a camera phone in twenty twenty three, seventy years later, is really gonna serve the purpose anyway, is it? Totally agree. And I think that should come that should come to an end of our old man yells at cloud segment. Because that's essentially what this has been. And probably is going to be reoccurring to a certain <laughs> degree. But I feel like we should name it that just for a little bit of self-awareness. Absolutely, yeah. We're just two bitter old men. Yes. Not that old, but old enough to complain. <sighs> I'm old enough for a lot of things, Ryan. Yes. You're only as young as you feel or you're old as your knees or whatever the whatever the <laughs> saying is. And speaking of old. Doctor Who is a pretty old TV show, as you just said. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, so what, 60 years old would put it firmly Mm. in the 1960s. And I was thinking about this, because like earlier I just used the word franchise. That feels like a weird word to use for this. Yeah. Franchise to me feels like, I don't know if the the state of the ownership really makes that much of a difference, but it doesn't feel like the BBC have franchised Doctor Who. It feels like they've kept it going. And there have been spin-offs and some other yeah, stuff like Torchwood that. Yeah, Torchwood was a spin-off, wasn't it? Yeah, and it does all the same stuff a franchise does. It merchandises and it, you know, trademarks and gets yeah. in, like it releases tie-in comic books and things <laughs> like that for extra money. But it doesn't I don't know. I am I am I weird for thinking like it doesn't feel like a proper franchise? It feels a bit like a British institution. Like, yeah, even no, if- I'm right there with you. And I think it is it's very Britishness. That does that to it because it's a BBC production. And again, for our American listeners who maybe aren't Anglophiles, because there are a lot of American Anglophiles, aren't there? I feel like BBC News is like is where they hear it most often. Yeah. Um, the BBC is an institution in the UK. Um, and it it it's something that like a lot of people, maybe of a slightly older generation, would watch something purely because it was made by the B because they think well the BBC made it so it must be good and even though it's government technically government funded I mean te- it's funded by the TV license technically yeah but that's obviously paid the government arranged that yeah. even though it's government funded it still has an air of impartiality politically and the only reason I say that is because I constantly see people on both the left and the right claiming it's not impartial mm. so I feel like if you're actually aiming for real impartiality 
that's probably well, the best everyone's sign upset. of it. Exactly. Yeah. No one's, no one's going to be like, we all respect you because you don't take a side. Like, yeah, real, I agree. Actual practical impartiality, real neutralness. Both sides going, you bastard, you <laughs> fucked us over. No, they fucked us over. Like, so, yes, I agree with you. And it, and it is, is, is an institution and they've made some cool shit. Right? Like the Beeb have made some really cool shit up and down the years. They've made some good stuff, but for the amount of stuff they make, speaking as a television fan, a British television fan, they don't make nearly enough stuff to to justify the 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 grandiose, you know, the rev- self reverence that they have. I think they yes. ride the coattails of the few great things they make. Like yeah. when they made Sherlock, they were riding on that for ages after so yeah here's another sherlock like thing and none of them was good and sherlock itself fell off a cliff towards the end in quality did, yeah but doctor who is one that's it's quality is an interesting one there because it's even though it's not franchise or anything and it's not like got like film directors it's had showrunners and that apparently has marked some points in quality well i think one of the things that any whovian will say is part of the joy of doctor who is that it reaches really great heights and some of it's really sublime and then it also hits the absolute troughs of being ridiculous and like even a whovian would say doctor who isn't always good but that's part of its charm well there's a bit of a trend i know exactly what you mean in terms of like per episode like you can pick those points out per episode and that is that's all part of the doctor who culture yeah in a way and the the whole style absolutely the trend in terms of quality does seem to line up from what from kind of common consensus and obviously everyone's gonna have different opinions about this but apparently there's two showrunners who have who have worked on it so you've got for the first couple of seasons you had a uh, russell t davis who has just come back for this 60th anniversary and is taking it over again he did obviously your eccleston and your tenants which are revered as some of the best doctor who and then you've got this other guy stephen moffat who took over for then the matt smith era going into capaldi and um jodie whittaker yeah and apparently i'm right for me apparently moffat is seen as not as good a showrunner as <laughs> as russell t davis i want to sh- clarify just in case i did not watch barely i watched the matt smith i did feel like the matt smith was going a bit all over the place towards the end the yeah. story was kind of going a bit everywhere um and then i watched i watched the beginning of the capaldi era and I quit that because in the first episode he comes is in the medieval ages and he comes riding out on a tank playing an electric guitar. <laughs> and I was like, one, that's such a ham-fisted attempt to be cool, to appear cool that was did not seem self-aware at all. Like it wasn't like ironic or done for a joke. Yeah. It just genuinely seemed like they were trying to make him seem cool. And what's bad as well is the, some of the best part of the David Tennant era, there was a part where there was a few specials where he didn't have a companion. Yeah. And he was do, he was actually in this kind of like this trial and tribulation of what, like questioning why he can't change the things in time that he can't. Yeah. And there was this episode where he ends up accidentally on the Mars and he meets like the first Mars astronauts. Yeah. And one of them, he basically says he knows they all die. So he, and this is from a few years ago, so uh, spoilers, but he knows they're all going to die. So he's like, and he gets to know them. And uh, he, he starts the episode being like, yeah, I can't interfere. Like, I know what's going to happen to you. I can't do anything. And by the end, he's like, you know what? Bollocks this. Like, he's just lost to companions who so he's in like a raw area. So he's like, you know what? Bollocks this. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to save you. Like, who cares? I'm getting my, getting my TARDIS. We're getting out of here. And the woman who finds out, she's like, I'm like, you told me 
that I have to die here so that my daughter will be inspired to become an astronaut and then she achieves more than I did. And she and that's why it's such a pivotal point where they have to die. Yeah. And he's like, you know what? Fuck that. Like, I'm deciding now. Get in the TARDIS. I'm taking you home. <laughs> and he takes her home. And then he takes her home. And if I'm right in remembering, she basically goes home and kills herself. And to try and... Because she knows that's how it has to happen. Right. And that's dark. I know, it? exactly. And he basically... Do- that tenant, uh, tenant Doctor Who is like spirals out of control and that leads to him having to regenerate where he like that's builds to that point i mean i think one of the like features of both tenant and matt smith's doctors are that they are both a bit more unhinged mm. like christopher eccleston's very grounded in the role isn't he yeah but he he felt like he had that unhingedness just under the surface that's yes. what i thought her. like he had access to it and he could pull it out where like the last episode the eccleston one he basically says like the daleks have come back yeah and he's like you know what i'm gonna kill all of us like all you daleks and me i'm gonna kill us all and the daleks like why would you risk that and he's like i can't remember what he said at the time but it basically came across to me in my all-on memory is i'm fucking crazy all right like i'm gonna kill us all i'm a bit tapped and this is happening exactly (laughs) and it was that but he said it in a doctor way but what i remember i don't remember the words but i remember the feeling that he elicited with his performance but like i said tenant having this thing with protecting the timeline and going against it and that being such a big point and then you had the entire matt smith run and then you had the capaldi one where he's bring back tanks and electric guitars to medieval time yeah and at no point did they address that in the matt smith one i was like fair enough you don't need to you've done that story you don't need to touch it again like it'd be yeah. cool if you did but you don't need to but to then go the opposite direction uh, completely unexplained with the capaldi one i was like i'm done like yeah. i give up now and apparently again the quality i just kept hearing it wasn't great the capaldi one the writing i should say the acting has always been yeah, the doctor's always been good. Peter Capaldi, man, he's a great fucking actor. Exactly. And I've I heard, heard he was really good in um Thick of It. Well, the, the, he was really good in the Thick of It. I yeah. loved him in the Thick of It. I've heard he was good in the Game of Thrones spin-off. He's not in that? Is he not? No. Is no. Peter Capaldi not in the Game of Thrones spin-off? No. A House of the Dragon. No. You're thinking yeah. of Matt Smith, aren't you? He's in it too. Matt Smith is in it, yeah. One minute. I could have sworn he played the Mad King. But that wouldn't make any sense, would it? No, that I can't remember his name, but he's great British actor. Um, he was in. He was one of their Andes in Hot Fuzz. Uh, Patrick something. Yeah. Okay. No, and one of the Andes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. He's not in House of the Dragon at all. I thought you might be thinking of. Uh, is it Reese Iffens? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of British people in that show, but Capaldi's he's done a lot of good stuff, and apparently Whitaker was really good as, uh, in the role as well. All I kept hearing from the outside was the writing and the stories are not great. Um, so yeah, what do you? How do you feel about the new bloke? New Doctor is Shuti Gatwa, who yeah. I absolutely had to Google the name of to get the pronunciation correctly. To the point where I googled him saying it himself. So it's like <laughs> I am getting this right. That's respectful, man. Exactly. That's cool. I rate it. Um, and luckily he's famous enough. It's not like with the comic book artists where like there's no interviews with this letterer. So who knows? But um. He, uh, a big fan of his before he got announced uh, from the TV show Sex Education. Which he is phenomenal in as Eric. Yeah. I He's tell you, such a great performance. One thing I've had, and this is something I've not told anyone, because it just never never needed to, never came up. I will sometimes fantasize, like, what if I remade this thing that I was a fan of? But like a modern version, right? Do you do that too? Yeah. Like, well, maybe it's more common then. That's really fun. One I thing I was, I was thinking of was a modern uh, adaptation of Red Dwarf. And I thought... 
him and the guy who plays Otis would be a good uh, Lister and Rimmer. Yeah, because he would, because Shooty would be the perfect Rimmer. No, Shooty would be Lister. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I always get them mixed up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he'd be. Yeah, he would be really great at that. Otis would be a great uptight like yeah. Rimmer, but like they're such good friends. Like they have great friend chemistry in Sex Education. So imagine them being like enemies who become friends, like in Red Dwarf. I thought would have been great, but and now he's going to be too famous for that. Oh, and then who who would you have as Cat? I don't know enough young actors. That's the thing. It's like I saw a Sex Education. I was like, this is the only thing I've seen like young actors in, mm. like commonly. So I've just found the first two that fit. So yeah, that whole cast is fucking great. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, again, like we were saying for Gillian Anderson. Gillian Anderson, mm. man, is a hot therapist mum. <laughs> so Shuey looks like he's going to be good. Um, but the main thing as well is uh, the return of Russell T. Davis. Yeah. And again, Stephen Moffat, apparently his show running period was not great for writing. But I will caveat that by saying he did write some of the most well-received episodes during the Russell T. Davis earlier days. And he wrote a bunch of Sherlock, didn't he? Yeah, but again, that Sherlock was great in the beginning and fell off at the end, so that's not a great... But I think he wrote the start of Sherlock. Like, I think he was the original showrunner. He also wrote the end. Him and... Mm. Um, he was from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, Mark Gattis. Right, They okay. both did Sherlock, yeah. And I think Gattis has done a bit in Doctor Who as well. But, yeah, so... Russell T. Davis returning a showrunner, that's obviously got people hyped for it. Yeah. I watched the 60th anniversary, and that was a very return to form with Tennant and Catherine Tate. Yeah. And they Catherine Tate was a great companion, wasn't she? She was very much a, what the bloody hell is that kind of thing, which but was missing from the companions, I think. Very fun and working class and British. Like yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, it was an interesting plot. It was kind of a by the numbers, but it was vague enough that they kind of put some new spin on where they left off with the character yeah. with Catherine and Tennant and it's they still haven't explained why Jodie Whittaker regenerated into Tennant again because that in itself is quite odd and I don't think has ever happened before so you know interesting to see where they go from there they had a fun uh villain type who is part of the story and is revealed so i won't get into that at all if anyone hasn't seen it but it's worth checking out if you have any passing interest in who it felt like for me mm. and what i've seen it felt like quintessential doctor who again so one of the things that confuses me about doctor who is when you get that moment where two of the doctors meet and they're both surprised by each other and they're like looking at each other kind of oh I, I, you look weird kind of thing and it makes sense when david tennant and matt smith's doctors met it makes sense that David Tennant would be looking at Matt Smith going, oh, you look a bit funny. Oh, you're a bit tall. You've got a nicer suit on kind of thing. But then Matt Smith's looking at David Tennant's doctor, who he was. <laughs> so they do explain that in that because they they explain Tennant is confused. No, Smith is confused because he's like, why don't I remember this? I should remember this. And then I think at the end, I might be wrong. It's been ages since I've seen it. I think that what happened in the end is Smith is Tennant goes, when it's all said and done, he's like, right, I need to erase this memory. Like to preserve so that I can become you and see you later. So I think right. that's the gist of it. So he men in blacks himself. Yeah, I'd assume so, yeah. Because he, he can men in black people with the sonic screwdriver, can't he? Not with the sonic screwdriver, no. Oh. He did a thing to tape where he made her forget all the Time Lord information that she took in her head when when uh, so he had to make her forget not only all the Time Lord information. Yeah. But their entire interactions as well which what made that parting of the companions so like sweet. sweet yeah exactly and that's a big factor in this one going forward very spider-man no way home yeah there is <laughs> yeah essentially yeah but on one person there's a bit of a deus ex machina towards the end it's not 
full on Deus yeah. Ex, but it, it for me, I was a bit like, that's a bit convenient. Like that's that's a bit like, well, don't have to worry about that big problem anymore. That's fine. So uh, I will say that. So, so what did we think of the comic book? I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I, I thought it would just be a run-of-the-mill Doctor Who tie-in. And I was yeah. surprised by how much I enjoyed not only the story I thought was interesting, but I found it much funnier than I was anticipating. Well, I mean, it's Doctor Who. You, you do, you, it needs to be funny. Like Doctor Who, that's one of the core things is that... But just because something needs to be funny or should be funny doesn't mean every writer pulls it off. <laughs> Rick and Morty comics. Exactly. <laughs> the, first two, the first two volumes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this week we are covering uh, the newly released uh, October this year, just released uh, Doctor Who... Uh, once upon a time lord and is this new just came out to tie in with the 60th anniversary we're doing so i liked the way the story was framed in that it was his companion telling a story about him and we're not 100 percent sure whether it's a fictional story about him or something that actually happened i thought that was interesting interestingly the writer so i'll give the credits first the, yeah go do it the writer is particularly interesting is a guy named dan slot mm. and he's interesting because not only is he it's his first run in doctor who apparently he's always been a big fan this is his first time writing it he's been a big marvel and dc writer specifically he wrote for 10 plus years on amazing spider-man oh now, wow one of the parts he wrote i think it kind of started his run was actually, in my opinion, the last time mainline Spider-Man was good. Oh, really? He, yeah, he wrote this, and it's it's controversial as well, but it's, I'll explain. He wrote this part where, so when he started, he wrote this story where Doc Ock takes over Peter Parker's body. Oh, I know about this, yeah. Him. And it was controversial at the time because what ends up happening is Peter Parker in Doc Ock's old body dies. Right. So on the one hand, you're really shitting on Peter Parker by having your one of your enemies take over your body and you die in an old body. But it frames it in a way where Peter realizing they having this kind of mind melt thing, Peter realizing that he's not going to be able to take the body back. So what he does is he kind of the the experiences within the body he puts Doc Ock through. So they do an interesting part where Doc Ock is living all Peter's experiences growing up, but it's it's Doc Ock in the body in the um in the memories yeah, yeah, yeah. so doc Ock goes through them and has like a oh with great power comes great responsibility uh, so <laughs> peter dies but doc Ock vows to become the superior spider-man as he calls himself right so he's like i will in your honor i will be a bit so it's kind of that villainous like ego like yeah. i'm gonna be a better spider-man but his goals are to be a superhero and save people and do good but i need to be better than you at it exactly <laughs> and what happens Fucking is love a narcissist yeah and he <laughs> he gets his phd as parker he right. he starts parker industries which leads to the billionaire phase oh. for a short time but what happens is the green goblin comes back as standard um but doc Ock realizes he can't handle it against the uh, green goblin like green yeah. goblin is too much like chaos for him to actually handle so it gets to a point where he's like actually i need peter parker back and <laughs> then they do this thing which you know super shenanigans of parker's course. like deep down in the brain and he kind of brings it back but there is a great part where um there's a great part where parker comes back in dot in his body and doc ock is like gone now and goblin is like he knows it's doc ock so he's yeah. like ah, come on, Otto, what you're going to do now? You've lost kind of thing. And uh, Parker's like, just his first line back is like, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't be gloating for someone who wears a disgusting man bag <laughs> and a satchel or whatever he calls it. And Goblin hears this line and goes, 
oh, you're back. <laughs> like he knows it just from that, that line. Quit. Exactly. Yeah, 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 that's like, cool. And it, just the sound like, oh God. Like, <laughs> so that was a cool part. And I think that ending justified it for a lot of readers. I think mm. that it was controversy when it happened. And then afterwards, a lot of people were like, you know what? That was actually really good. Yeah. And Otto as Parker is such a unique character. Mm. I was like kind of an asshole, Peter Parker, but he's, he's humbled a lot of the time as well. And he's always thinking he's crazy intelligent when he, you know, fumbles occasionally and is humbled and stuff. It's good read. Yeah. And then he did for like several years after that. And then, you know, he's done a lot. So this guy's Spider-Man. done some pretty big Marvel shit, basically. Exactly. Yes. So uh, who published this? Uh, the publisher is a third party called Titan Comics. Right. Who I'd never heard of before. But Are they, they British? I don't think so. Maybe. I, I haven't seen that specifically. They do quite a few comics and they, they didn't appear to be overly British. Yeah. Um, one thing I will point out is the artists, Christopher Jones and Matthew Dow Smith and colorist Charlie Kirkhoff and... Marianne Guzmao and lettering Richard Starkings of Comic Craft, who I don't recognize, but they, those are the people who did it. So right off the top. Are we starting with the arting? We're starting with the arting. Yeah. Is that, is, have you, oh, you've worked something out. I love it. Literally what it was in my head was <laughs> it was going to be, and as always, let's start with the art. But then as <laughs> I phrased it, I was like, well, starting is the is the correct it's the past participle right. yeah we starting yeah. with the arting yeah and as a grammar nazi i thought you would appreciate the grammarian specific... <laughs> right you've got two options right <laughs> and i saw this earlier and i thought of you you can either go grammar nazi or this new one that i saw recently which i don't know if you'll think is better or worse but right as in wr right supremacist no I... <laughs> which one of the two we have a word for it that we use that is grammatically correct so it's on brand and it is grammarian yeah but also like we have technical words for things like cranium we don't like ah oh, hit my cranium on the you know you're like yeah i have my hit my head like it's that isn't it no <laughs> no it's completely different it kind of feels like the same no because both of those are pejorative i mean <laughs> the view of the rest of the world who aren't Romarians, quote Thank unquote. you, fuck's sake. Would... Is it that fucking difficult? <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things that I enjoy putting less effort in. I, I should say, putting less mental thought into a... That's why Grammar Nazi is just like the one that's in the... You know, it's the one that started on the internet, isn't it? When people are trying to win an, uh, win an argument with, uh, you're actually... I mean, it's not about winning an argument. No. It's just a... You, you, know... are, you, are a, a, you, are, you are a true believer a grammarian like you're not doing it for shits and giggles you actually believe they should all be correct well i just so one of the you know one of the blessings of my life is that i was born speaking english in the country that it originated from and i think english is a gorgeous language and so i just want to see it used and not abused i mean we're wait the internet has ruined that for all languages nowadays well hasn't it just um, and AI is probably going to make it worse. Um, starting with the arting. <laughs> <laughs> starting with the arting. I enjoyed the art, I, I, but I did notice very... I, I enjoyed the colour and everything. I yep. thought it was very vibrant, very interesting. I thought the, the line work and everything was... It, it's one of those... It's that, it's that level where I don't want this to come off as like derogatory. I mean, it was passable for the story. It serviced the story. I didn't notice the art for the most part. It was that level of... It was if it's good enough to not be noticed, that is a certain quality that's appreciated. This for me fell into the trap. Janky faces. Of having but a very particular kind of jank. We might have taken the same photo, potentially. Which we last experienced in the Star Wars comic. Yes. Where yeah. you are seeing illustrations of actual people. 
And so you have a really defined reference for what these people look like, because that is an okay illustration of Christopher Eccleston, but it is a bit janky. It is a bit janky, yes. I As is that. I took a different one earlier. I took this photo, which is very early on, and it's, for some reason, this artist, They're gr- I think they're great in every other aspect. For some reason, some face on views where they're smiling look especially creepy so that exact one i took a note of that because it looks exactly the way he looks in that neil gaiman thing where he looks a bit crazed i thought it also reminded (laughs) me more of um jessica jones where he plays character kilgrave yeah right it just looks so creepy and tenant can do creepy we know that but yeah i was just uh but there are other points where there's art like this i was my notes essentially i preferred the flashback art to the modern day art yeah so this particular illustration of david tennant i think really captures his facial posture not just the physicality of where his face looks and where the lines are but the way he holds his face and you know when he does that like oh well kind of like he's kind of posturing mm. and he's moving his face around and he's thinking as the doctor I think they absolutely nailed that in that piece of art to the extent that I can hear David Tennant pulling that face. Yep, I know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? And so there are points where it's really, really nailed on. Um, where When he illustrates Billy Piper, maybe that's just a kink of this guy's because he illustrates her really well. <laughs> and the other companion, the companion who's telling the story. Martha, yeah. He illustrates Martha beautifully. Um, so to some degree, he does... I've been learning how to draw. You know this. I don't know if the audience know about this, but I've been learning how to draw. I think you mentioned it. Drawing women's faces is incredibly difficult. Men's faces, if you get the angles right and you make them look a bit angular, you can kind of make them look right. Femme faces are much more difficult. And this guy excels at drawing women. Like he draws Martha beautifully well. You know, there's not a single panel with Martha in it where I think she looks off. The only ones I think, and again, this is my common thing, is wh- is when she's smiling. For some reason, when the characters are smiling, it just looks a b- it looks a bit um, uncanny valley. Mm. Like it fits, but there's uh, something there that doesn't quite you know, ring true. And potentially, s- people smiling might be a very difficult is artist hard, thing. Yeah. yeah, so fair enough. But I thought for the most part, the art you know served the story. Like it kept me engaged. It didn't take me out of it at all. And I really liked the different styles for the modern day versus the flashbacks yeah i think the flashbacks look beautiful with all those heavy lines and all of that black and then you can see they do the 1960s thing of not quite cross hatching but dot shading yeah which is really reminiscent of john romita senior's spider-man art and then that plays into the original the origins of the 60s doctor yeah exactly like yeah it all just kind of ties in so all in all i'd say the art is really fun It's just, again, I think it's that difficulty. And I don't think this is a slight on the artist. I think this is that these comic book artists, their skill is illustration, right? And their skill is developing a character and then learning how to draw that character in a million different poses. That's what comic book artists need to be good at, right? They need to be good at creating a compelling looking silhouette, essentially, particularly for superhero stuff. I know that's not where yeah. we are today, but that's what this There's guy's some, bread and butter. Some crossover, yeah. And then posing them well. And I think the challenge comes in when you are representing a real person. And we saw that the, star, the, the art in that Star Wars comic we were looking at was fantastic throughout, right up until the moment they had to draw Luke. Specifically, I think with that one, it was like very, the most human faces had to seem, seem to have the most issue. But maybe as as readers and viewers... 
we're noticing it more with human faces. And I think the thing is, it's not just human faces, it's recognisable human faces. Because if I was looking at those illustrations of David Tennant and Christopher Eccleston out of context, having never seen those people's faces... I would be like, yeah, that's a face, right? Yeah. Like they're perfectly good. They're they're good. They're good illustrations. It's the fact that they're representing a real person who I would recognise in real life that you then it's an extra layer of complexity. You're not just drawing a believable face. You're drawing a believable version of Christopher Eccleston's face. Yeah, and, and that makes it so much more difficult, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that's definitely an area we I think have to. Uh, give some allowance yeah well yeah absolutely because it's really fucking difficult and again this would have been made to a budget to a time scale yeah i think uh, what that was going to be my point was i think any artist who does any of this stuff they could do a great like very realistic version of whatever we're criticizing but it would take more time and effort to do that thing well and as you say they've got the bu- the time and the budget so they're just like I need to get all these panels out. I'm going to do as good a job as I can. And I, and again, I think it's interesting that in the, as you say, in the, that very slightly different art style for the flashbacks with the heavier black, that's kind of more of a, a more illustrative, less realistic style. David Tennant looks fantastic. Yeah. Like there, there's, and again, the key, the core thing that you really want to look great in a, in an adaptation of Doctor Who are the monsters and they look fucking fantastic. I loved the uh, the pyromeths. Yeah, the pyromeths look fantastic. They're scary. Mm. I think they're a bit scary. As soon as the they turn from kids to pyromeths, I yeah. was like, oh, here we go. Like this is more. This is when they said the pyromeths. I immediately just imagined like a human wearing a suit of an alien, and then immediately I was like, oh, thank God, they're taking the the advantage of a comic book. They're not just doing like, well, it's Doctor Who, so we have to make a guy in a mask which they do later yeah but i think that's like more of like a reference to the original to the actual tv show but i like that in this moment they were like let's just make some weird fucking things that we couldn't do on the tv show mm. like let's take that leap for this one because one of the things that, the, that doctor who kind of stayed true to the original 60s version in the reboots they didn't use a whole heap of cgi nope i mean daleks and cybermen were basically exactly the same like, i mean modernized but yeah yeah no totally like they used a lot of costuming and a lot of props um, and that kind of that's part of the charm and the aesthetic of it. And and I, and I, and I think they totally knocked it out of the park yep, in this yep. comic. Like I think, I mean, you know, janky faces aside and we've talked about that and it's a bugbear of mine. We know this. Yeah. Um, but again, it's kind of permissible and explainable here because they're taking on such a big challenge in representing actual actors. But in general, the art looks great. I think it's coloured beautifully. Yeah, like, I, the colourists on this were fantastic. The colour was so good that I stopped noticing after a while. Yeah, totally. Which for me is like, again, it just supported the story fully. I was engaged in it. Like the darker moments were like a right kind of like dark in a cave <laughs> pyramid yeah, kind yeah. of thing. But then as soon as you were out, the campfire look was always good when yeah. you returned to that. So yeah, art was never boring and it only enhanced the story, which is mm. great. Uh, what did you think of the the story or more specifically what was the story can you tell us no can't tell us that what the story was no because it's always bad when i do it come on no i believe in you you're better at this than me yeah but that's why we're pushing your skills where no no i'm i'm batting this one back to you once again all right but just in case if i was like a doctor who fan i was like i've never read this comic like what 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 can you recommend about it what is it good so the doctor is a time traveling alien (laughs) Yeah, I'll allow you, like, I already know that stuff, so you don't need to get into that. Like, what is the Doctor doing? So, the Doctor is 
the doctor is well the doctor's doing doctor stuff yes this is the thing that i'm sorry like the story was fun but it was a bit generic the doctor's doing doctor stuff fighting aliens See, i would have gone the route that you already mentioned earlier which was the, the story the way it's framed oh right yeah so the story's really beautifully framed mm. Um, so the Doctor's companion has been captured by a bunch of aliens who feed off of stories. So I made a note of this, and I think you'll agree. Why so- are you cutting me off? Because tangents. You're making me do this, and now you're cutting me off, and I don't like it We'll return. Oh, hang on. You don't like cutting off and going on tangents. <laughs> Fuck off. So anyway, Cod. So um- <laughs> the, the explanation for the stories is like, Oh yeah, because they. Uh, uh, one thing I like the the spanning explanation across yes, all the doctors. Fantastic. He's been telling companions about these pyromaths for for as long as he's been alive in all his forms. So I thought that was particularly good because it was it was it enhanced like the severity of like who you're about to meet, and it feels like a technique they could never use in the TV show for obvious reasons. So it's like again, you making use of the medium of yeah. comics, which for us we're gonna be like. This is better than the TV show because it's doing things the TV show couldn't. Because it's doing things you could only do in this medium. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. But so that enhanced the severity of the, the, the creatures. They feed off the psychic energy. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the most overused terms in Doctor Who. Yes. Behind TARDIS and uh, Sonic Screwdriver. It's literally like, how do we explain this concept relating to these aliens feeding yeah psychic energy yeah like that's that's all you need standard isn't and it? it's not just doc two it's common as well but i thought you'd get a kick out of like why is this like we talk about science fiction explanations yeah. why does this work psychic i made it was like it's the equivalent of like how do you explain this machine working uh well i put the word quantum and then that's <laughs> and that catch all solves everything psychic energy is is the, it's a cosmic treadmill it's cosmic it's quantum <laughs> it's psychic energy yeah you and just, that's so marvel in dc isn't exactly. it exactly so back to the back to the story as you were saying. So she has been kidnapped by an alien race that feed off the psychic energy that happens when you are telling a story. Um, the better the story, the more they get from it. But then if the story gets boring, they just banish you to a realm that the doctor can't find. Or when the story just ends. Or then, or when the story ends. And so she is telling a story about the doctor. Well, done. Um, searching for the most valuable thing in the world perfect summary i'd say that was a great one thank and, you and now you've proven you can do it so oh. <laughs> well we'll go back and forth sometimes i'll do them sometime you know but i thought this one was a good one for you to do because you just mentioned the key part yeah. earlier anyway and again i i love like i love a well-framed story mm. and i love a story that's more than just a story and i think the thing that kept me going with this because it was a kind of generic doctor who story well, here's the thing, like, it's not quite a generic Doctor Who story. It's kind of like the one below where they they sometimes use this kind yeah. of device. So the generic one is Doctor Who lands somewhere, something's afoot, they investigate, oh no, there's aliens, oh, they've got a big plan, ooh, the Doctor's gonna run, they've got to run, run round, run round, oh, here's the last thing, let's save this, and then maybe a bit of sweet, maybe happy ending, and then back to the TARDIS. One of the chameleon song, chameleon circuit songs I liked, by the way, was an awful lot of running to do. Because <laughs> that is the thing, like, he's always running somewhere, isn't he? And that definitely separates him from a lot of, like, the heroes, even, like, like historical literature. How yeah. many heroes are, like, fighting for something? Doctor Who's like, I'm smart and I can fix all this, but in terms of, like, any actual, like, combat or fighting or anything, run away. Like, yeah, that's he doesn't throw punches, at. does he? Exactly. But... So I'd say this is like the one under where they occasionally will do a meta storytelling where someone else is the main character. Yeah. And then it's about the Doctor. So this is like a 
if if the the run of the mill story is A, this is a B. Like this is yeah. what they do when they don't do A. And it's it's a fun way to frame a story because for a lot of it, I was like, is this fiction? <laughs> well, no, I mean, within, I know what you mean, yeah. within the context of the story, I, is this fiction? My first reaction was like, wait, what? And I was like, no, oh right, I get what you mean. Within now. the context yes. of the narrative, yes, is this B narrative or A narrative that we're seeing of the Doctor going on this journey looking for this thing? And they really subtly like play with that because yeah, at no absolutely. point are the pyromites like wait is this real and martha goes find out at the end Ooh. like they never do that over the top it's very subtle how you it's just a, a thing as a reader if you're interested you go hang on is this real like yeah. it allows you to ponder that and and i think what's interesting is that the they 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 play with the way the doctor speaks a little bit to give you a sense that it's his voice coming through her voice and i think that's really interesting and it's really subtle really really subtle but I clocked it and I noticed it and I kind of noticed that theme running through it and I thought yeah. it was really interesting. Yeah. I was surprised. I liked the pyromaths and when the concept of them and what they were doing, I was like, okay, so they're a story device. Fair enough. Like, if it's a good story, then fine. I was surprised how much I related to the pyromaths. Like, did you get that at all? No. So there were so many lines. I was like, we <laughs> say this stuff on the podcast. Oh, I was like, right. Are, are, are on that we level. pyromaths? Yeah. yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Not, not that I'm capturing people and torturing them to tell me stories, but like the couple of the lines. I mean, with the way that artists are treated in the comic book industry, it does kind I mean, of feel that way the sometimes. Artists, <laughs> the artists especially, absolutely. <laughs> uh, how, hashtag how comics broke me, I think is the one. Look it yeah. up if you're interested. Um, but so many lines like Martha starts a story and it's about someone else and then it's about the doctor and one of the pyromaths just in all caps goes not a promising start well and it's when like, she says once upon a time yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> I was like oh my god are you me <laughs> and then it's like this is poor storytelling and I was like oh my god I feel seen and then <laughs> yeah no I get it I see what you mean and then they talk about he uses his psychic paper his psychic uh yes. wallet paper whatever and they go why uh, that wasn't mentioned in the first story is that a thing he normally has why were you like and she's like well like, no he only uses it when he needs it like <laughs> was it like chekhov's psychic paper like you didn't mention it in the first story so why has he got it in the second one did that one threw me off because i'm used to his kit obviously yeah like, have, that's so, a rarer used one but still quite common because yeah the sonic screwdriver comes out iconic yeah it's iconic and it's different every time and some of them are bigger and smaller which is great fun for them mm. um i have wondered though because you know he has two hearts yep do you reckon he has two uh livers no uh pancreas pan pancreases penises obviously penis it's obviously I mean, penis, Ryan. So the thing we talked about this last, <laughs> we talked about this general subject last week. Yeah. If it's family friendly, no. Doesn't have a penis. There, it, it cannot be verified. It's like I said with Batman's dick. It's like when they, <laughs> when they finally showed Batman's dick in the comic, that's when it became confirmed he had one in the first place. Well, I say this because there's an interview with Billy Piper from back in the day with Graham Norton. I know exactly where you're going with this, but go on. Where, she, where Graham Norton speculates about this and she jokes that she calls him David she called David David 10 inch and they were trying to work out if it was one 10 inch or two fives. <laughs> that just really amuses me. I mean, it feels like one of those things are like you could explore the lore of the time <laughs> to be like, is it two penises or, or four balls? Like, oh my knows? God, four, imagine sitting down. I feel like he couldn't do that with the amount of running he does. <laughs> A 10 inch would be uncomfortable. I mean, the four balls specifically. <laughs> That'd be the worst part. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. Um, maybe sorry. it's maybe it's one of those it's bigger on the inside deals. <laughs> 
the TARDIS has always been weird to me because it being bigger on the outside than the inside was obviously like a set limitation. Yeah, it had to be, yeah. I mean, it played for a fun, like, I don't think they had to do it. It just played for a fun, like, there's the box, and then open the box. Oh, in somewhere else. Oh, it's bigger. Yeah. And again, like, he invites somebody into the TARDIS in this, doesn't he? And they go, yeah. oh, it's much bigger on the inside. And you go, oh, it's the TARDIS. It literally, it has, that's one of those things that it has to happen every episode. Yeah. If someone knew's in the TARDIS, like, it's a commitment to realism. Because yeah. if that happened, everyone would say that. Yeah, every they would, time. yeah. And the doctor just goes, yep. Like, he's not, <laughs> it's not even, he's not got a quip or a response or anything. He's just, yep. Yes, it is. I, I've often wondered why he doesn't try and find a new chameleon circuit. Why he doesn't try and find one? Yeah. What, what I, I'm assuming chameleon circuit is a thing from the show, but I don't know what it is. Right, so the reason that the TARDIS is always a police box is because it used to have a thing called a chameleon circuit, right. which would disguise it. I think it's been mentioned as just he he's fine with it. Yeah, he's like, just like totally cool with it I being think broken. He, he had that thing where I think people have had it with like cars or various vehicles or stuff where something cosmetic breaks and you think, I need to get that fixed. And not quite the level of, like, dangerous, mm. but, you know, something like that. And then he realized after that in-between time before getting it fixed, he realized, oh, this doesn't matter, actually. Like, he could go to medieval times or alien planets or whatever, and no one looks at the box twice. It's so weird. Yeah, mm. I mean, because a police box is a thing that we used to have in Britain. So it's a it was a blue phone box that had a phone in it that you could call the police on. You picked the phone up and it went straight to your local police station. So if he was disguising it in 1960s Britain, perfect. Anywhere else it goes, it's incredibly conspicuous. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but again, I think the point is it lands here and that most people go, oh, it's one of the like it's the same now with telephone boxes. Like yeah. we still have telephone boxes around, the red ones, and. I've walked past them. I've never gone, hang on, that's unusual. They don't have those around anymore and yeah. gone in and investigate. I just walk past and go, oh, it's one of those old ones. Like it hasn't been removed or anything. A subtle joy in my life is walking around London and watching Americans get excited by phone boxes. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the things they don't have, do they? So, Well, they had pay phones, but they'd be like attached to a business and stuff. They didn't have like the box. Well, they did have the see-through boxes. Oh, they do, don't they? Remember yeah. the Colin Farrell film, Phone Booth? Yeah. Yeah. So they had those, but ours were like, they looked a bit more European. Though, They're compared ornate. To theirs. Yeah. They're very ornate and yeah. they had a royal seal on them and shit. Exactly. But the um, the psychic paper, that's like a thing he uses occasionally. It's, it's definitely like a quick plot device, but it's also like if you are an all-powerful alien god, essentially, why wouldn't you have something like that? Using it to solve that final riddle. Loved that. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. So clever. Because they set it up, they told us he had it, and then he used it in a really, he said, I don't know how to solve this riddle. And he obviously did because he had a MacGuffin. Yeah. And that's the doctor's thing is often he has a MacGuffin. But that's a MacGuffin that he's been using for years. Yeah, totally. And it's one of his tools. Exactly. So it was a clever use of the right to be like, oh, he like, let's not make a thing and then introduce our own MacGuffinist. There's MacGuffin. Let's set up a problem that it can solve. And I, for one, I was like, I thought he was going to answer the riddle, or I yeah. thought he was going to do something like that. And then he was, he, he pulled out the paper, and I went, "Oh, that's smart." Yeah, no, it was cool, and I liked it. Mm. And again, very David Tennant, and also very pyrometh of us. The pyrometh were like me was like, is it's a it's a it's a river river mouth uh, time uh, e uh, like I was that like, and then the pyrometh were like, I'm a pyrometh, like we are pyrometh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, again, because one of the things that I kind of felt about this story is that fun plot, lots of story, very much in keeping with the TV show itself. 
not a whole lot of deeper meaning or broader meaning. No, it was, then, it was a fun adventure. But then choosing to view the pyromaths as people who think about and talk about story, suddenly you have a little bit of you have a little bit of a deeper meaning in there. Um, you know, this is a story about the way we consume story, right? Essentially, yeah. I mean, that's that could be construed as a deeper meaning. Maybe intentional, maybe unintentional. Like doesn't matter. It could be a framing device or it could be it could have some deeper meaning. But you know, death of the author and all that bollocks. Oh, I was literally about to say, have we talked about the death of the author here? Have we talked about I'm the death of the sure author? I'm pretty sure we've talked about death of the author. We we must have done on this. I mean, do you wanna do you wanna give listeners who might not have heard that episode a quick rundown? The death of the author is a theory by Roland Barthes, which posits that once a story is read by somebody else, the author is now dead because their interpretation of the story is no more valuable than anybody else's. It's one of the core facets of literary criticism, which is that my opinion, providing that I'm able to evidence it within the text, is as valuable as anybody else's, including that of the author. Um, Which is really funny when you get into J.K. Rowling, who loves to do revisionist stuff with her texts. So like 20 years later, she'll be like, Dumbledore's gay. And you're like, there's no... There's no yeah. textual evidence for that. <laughs> Retconning for to win points in the modern day is not the same as actually pioneering like a gay character, mm. but for that specific reference. Because like if Dumbledore was actually gay, fucking well cool. Yeah, but then again, we, yeah, it's it's the coward's way. It's the coward's pandering of being like, well, I've left enough space they could be. It's like it's not the same. Doesn't it's count. not the same as actually have just having made him gay. You make Jude Law kiss a Mads Mickelson on the mouth in the Fantastic Beast series, or it doesn't count. And I don't think they've done that. Did Jude Law play a young Dumbledore? Yeah, in the Fantastic Beast films. Oh, he'd be great, so good at great, it. He was great casting. Be one of the few good things about those films. Yeah, that and Johnny Depp was meant to be pretty good in them, wasn't he? I didn't like him. The the cat the bad cat the antagonist in it. It starts out as Colin Farrell. And then it, the reveal is that it's Johnny Depp's character who has who has turned himself to look like oh, Colin well, he's Farrell's character. himself. Yeah, exactly. Colin Farrell was way better, in my opinion. Colin Farrell's fucking fantastic in everything. Though. Exactly. There's going to be a Penguin TV show coming out at some point, and he's if you haven't seen the Batman, he's uh, unrecognizable as the Penguin. And now he's doing an entire TV show, which means we get to cover a Tom King written. No, oh, wait, Tom King. Did he do a penguin shirt? The comic? If he did, you're going to find it. I'm hoping he did. I mean, we're doing so something. Was this the Robert Pattinson one? Yes. I've yeah. not seen it. It's so good. It's it's three hours, but we'll have to we'll watch it at some point. Because I've heard Robert Pattinson was excellent in it as Fantastic, well. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's good. Like he's a yeah. really good actor. I so my thing with actors is I judge them as being great if they nail two opposite performances. Yeah. I first said that with my claim to fame on this that for people who have listened to me talk about it is Cheetwell Ejafor, who was yeah. 12 years a slave. Years before that, I saw him in uh, Serenity, which was the Firefly yeah. film, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Four Brothers, the Mark Wahlberg film. Yeah. And he in one, he plays a tight-wound religious um, extremist, yeah. but very calm and collected and very stern in his belief and cold-ass killing people for his religious views. Yeah. And then in Four Brothers, he's a loud, boisterous, overly masculine gangster. Oh, like, cool. So he played both those so well. And I went, that's a great actor. And then yeah. a few years later, won the Oscar in 12 Years a Slave. And I was like, I fucking called it. I mean, Robert Pattinson is one of those that he was in a stinker. He was in something that was really popular, but not very good. Some would argue. I, I would agree, but... Many yeah, that's would argue with me. Uh, but I think he was like 
the first time I really saw him in anything was in the adaptation of Henry V. And he was playing the French prince and he was fucking fantastic in it. For me, it was, I saw him in The Lighthouse. Which oh yeah, shit. He was great in The Lighthouse, he wasn't he? disappears in. Yeah. Um, Good Time, which, yeah. which if anyone does know, it's the made by the Safdie brothers who made Uncut Gems. So it's, their thing is, how stressed out can I make the audience while also keeping them watching? Um, and I saw him in something else that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I saw a couple of things and he was so different in each one. He was really good in each one. And I, and I hadn't seen anything else by him. And I went, I now know he's a good actor because he's done these very different roles really well. Then I saw an interview with him. And after when I saw the interview, I was like, oh my God, he's amazing. Yeah. Because how different those, all those roles are from his normal self. He is quite a, for lack of a better word, kind of camp like he's kind of yeah effeminate like that's just his normal thing very like, articulate very charming yes very uh posh schoolboy esque yes totally like, so for him to then disappear into these like like whatever the time period of lighthouse like fisherman who smokes all the time and or good time where he's like a uh con artist kind of like desperate criminal kind of yeah like, he disappears into his roles and they're so different from his normal self because i think the the role he's had this probably closest to his normal self was cedric diggory yeah and he was a just a public school boy exactly yeah um yeah no totally yeah i mean i've i've only heard good things about the batman it's great i only well, heard good things about it we'll we'll get in at some point so back to the comic hey um <laughs> i like there's a i one thing that i just i did think a few seconds ago I've not actually said the name of the comic that we're doing, so I think I'm going to say it here in isolation and cut it into hey. the, to the top. Oh, you're making yourself more work. I love that for you. I mean, it's a lot of work. <laughs> so, it's a lot of work anyways. I'll be, I'm in the weeds. I'm doing the editing. This won't be anything. Yeah. So this week we are covering uh, the newly released uh, October this year, just released uh, Doctor Who, uh, Once Upon a Time Lord. And is this new it's just came out to tie in with the 60th anniversary we're doing oh shit i didn't realize this was a new title yeah. i thought this was like a historic one it's kind of why i picked it because i was like i was looking i was trying to genuinely look at like what are the best doctor who comics yeah and i looked up and i was like there wasn't much there was like one or two listicles yeah and but there wasn't much to i the fact that there wasn't people being like these are the good ones these are the banned ones I yeah thought either not many people are reading them but they've been sold and produced for so long that there must be a paying audience for them yeah or the quality has kind of kept a consistent level yeah where there's not much like these are bad and these are awesome like they're mostly just this kind of level so so our capaldi whittaker and smith left out here because this new doctor who thing is going is got tenant in it yeah it's tying in with tenant being in the 60th anniversary because I this is say. why i assumed it was older because i assumed that when they were running through all the doctors they would have included the current you know the last three yeah i guess it just makes sense that they're doing the tenant story so it's all the ones up to tenant how annoyed um, would you be if you were one of the other three and you were like why are you fucking leaving me out dude <laughs> oh i mean what's interesting is they leave out the war doctor so that was like a pivotal like backstory of the from eccleston onwards yeah um so they've left him out but i guess he's he didn't really have any companioning adventures so yeah. that kind of makes sense back to the actual the story as it's happening uh it goes from this uh moby dick-esque yeah, story which kinda, is quite yeah. fun fun pirates and stuff and they, it played with the weight of the tardis as a yes. plot point, which i thought was great kind of felt like a star wars story yeah sa sandworms kind of thing yeah, was, yeah like it like 
a kind of a spaghetti western adventure story, but set in space. Yeah, that's kind of Star Wars' whole shtick, isn't it? That was more Star Wars, and then the the next part was more Indiana Jones. Yes, totally. The, I made a note of. There was a point where they were talking about the the Martha's talking about where they are next, where he is next, and he's at the Egyptian pyramids. Yeah, and say the line is um, something, something, something until it was excavated by some of the worst villains in history. And I immediately went, the Nazis. <laughs> I went, the British. <laughs> oh, yeah, so true. Because normally be we're, the the two, ones do, we're normally the ones doing the excavate. And then literally as soon as I said, the Nazis, I then looked at the, the year again. I went, oh, 1940. Like that's, but that if, period, that was them. If this was, be, if this was an American franchise, 100% it would have been the British, not the Nazis. If it was outside of 35 to 45, I, yeah. it would have been the British. <laughs> But no, we were, it, we were busy during that time. And again, that's so Indiana Jones, isn't it? And, and then soon after that, he introduced himself as a British from the British Museum. Yes. And the woman he's talking to goes, oh, that's awful. And I went, ah, see, I was, I was right about the British. No, he introduces himself as being from the British Museum. And then he goes, oh, no, that's awful. It's him, it's him that doesn't like it. Well, someone doesn't like it. And I, I felt vindicated in my initial reaction to it being the British. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, it was fun that he was from the British Museum because it made total sense that he would be grave robbing. <laughs> yeah. Didn't it? Like, there was one panel which I loved like as an example of tenants like all over the place-ness, scantiness. I don't know what you'd call it, but it was a good example of that from the TV show. And his whole panel where he just goes through a lot of stuff in a quick succession so he's talking to Dr. Rana Rashid or Rashid and says, oh, you are Dr. Rana Rashid. <laughs> Emilio goes, half English, half Egyptian, studied at Oxford. And I was like, why is, a, why is the race matter? <laughs> why, why are you mentioning that? I think that feeds into something that David Tennant's doctor was quite particular with. I took that as I think he, he literally is, he knows all historical people, for, especially from Earth, because he is as an alien he's fascinated with earth and so he, he's going through the roller decks yeah. of his mind and, and he's and, picked out and he, and he would do that a lot and, and like david tennant's doctor particularly had this uncanny ability to like recognize and remember people and i think uh, and immediately after that he goes and though i usually point and laugh at archaeologists for you i'll make an exception because you're marvelous love your work like, yeah which is it do you hate uh, do you hate archaeologists or are you fascinated by the the best ones of them like i don't understand it was an inconsistency i was like that does feel very tenanty doctor well it did didn't it and and again i found that quite grounding yeah exactly I, I i had that kind of two minds of like that doesn't make sense i was like he didn't make sense a lot of the time so i that's... mean i think something that the writers really did here is that as i mentioned earlier i could kind of hear david tennant delivering a lot of these lines like i think they did a really great job of capturing his specific speech patterns as the doctor I on think, the page for me this is kind of making me think of Dan Slot is like kind of putting him in that like writers to look out for kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, totally. Because I mean, again, I enjoyed his Spider-Man run and especially the biggest parts of it. So, and this is just kind of reinforcer. He's good at capturing voices. When David Tennant played the Doctor, did he affect an English accent or did he remain Scottish? No, he was he was English. Yeah, was he English? Yeah, he's. I mean, basically, I've never seen him have a Scottish accent except for when he's in an interview. And he's Macbeth. only ever English. I mean, yeah, obviously. obviously yeah. <laughs> but I haven't seen that. But I mean, it's he never. Really good. Yeah, he never puts his Scottish accent in anything. Or was he Macbeth or was he Hamlet? I know, I've definitely seen him as Hamlet and he was fantastic. There was a great line from the Eccleston run, which I always think of, where he talked. When Rose, he reveals that he's an alien, and Rose goes, How are you an alien with a northern accent? And his response is, 
you think Earth is the only place with the North. <laughs> <laughs> That's Christopher Eccleston, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely stupid response, but also you can't. It's one. It's that meme of like where you're about to say something back and you actually go, oh, actually, that does make sense, <laughs> technically. I'm just double checking what Shakespeare he's done. Probably. I mean, those actors, English actors have probably done all of them. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure I've seen a recording of him as Macbeth and as Hamlet, and he was fantastic in both. Hmm. Again, he's he's what he's... David Tennant's one of that pantheon of great English actors who did a lot of stage work before they went to screen. See also Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. Yeah. You know, I think I think I think there's this real thing with with actors where the stage work is for them and then the film work is to yeah. for everyone else, do you know what I mean? One for them, one one for them, one for me kind of thing. Yeah, cuz he likes being on stage, doesn't he? Yeah, cool. I mean, all the best ones do. Mm. Patrick Stewart with technically his television debut was for especially for any kind of consistent role was Star Trek. He was purely stage uh, before that. And he would have made a great doctor. He would have made. He wouldn't have been a very energetic doctor, though. I think. Yeah, I think he would have surprised back like earlier on. Like if he was in that, he's poorly now, isn't he? Yeah, now he wouldn't. But I mean, in his prime, like I think he would have been great. Um, couple points here, which again reinforce this. I genuinely made note. Why is this comic so funny? Mm. Like one of the Nazis getting falling over and just goes "Akte Liebe." Mm. <laughs> it's like that's needlessly funny. And then the bit of that very, very Indiana Jones with the speaking to the Egyptian god slash alien. And it's like, do you want, do you wish to travel to the realm of the dead? And I was like, yeah, dead. (laughs) Just died. And then David Tennant's like, the doctor's like, yeah, I want to go, but I want to come back. I I had the thing of like, how is he going to get around this? And it was literally just semantics. Like that was funny in itself. But I just like the, yes, I'd like to go to the realm of the dead. Bang, dead. Like, the timing, the panel timing was so good for comedic stuff. Yeah, no, it was funny, wasn't it? And who doesn't want to see a Nazi die? I mean, that's <laughs> like, always fun. Like, yeah, absolutely. If you're going to have a Nazi, you might as well kill him off. That, again, especially Indiana Jones of it being the Nazis being the bad guys as well. I do feel like Dan Salt was like, I'm going to do a Star Wars bit and I'm going to yeah. do a, a, a Indiana Jones bit. And then the last bit kind of like meant to be, a, a, it was very Doctor Who homage, where mm. it was this psychic land of the dead, where all the previous enemies that the Doctor had killed or caused their death through an action yeah. were there. And I thought that was interesting because you had the different reactions to but the Doctor. But wasn't it great that he then, there was a monster who, this like guy turned up and we thought he was going to be a, a villain... And then he transformed into a werewolf and it turned out the Doctor had mercy killed him. And he and was grateful. He, I'm pretty sure, was from an episode. Yeah. Like an actual episode. So all of it was callbacks to episodes Tenant had been in. Yeah, I thought that, again, like lots of little twists and turns, but they all kind of made sense and they were all quite fun. Yeah. There's one part which I maybe would class as maybe a plot hole. And Go on it's, then. it's hard to pin down plot holes in this kind of world. Yeah, totally. But, the, but they kind of address it as well themselves. And mm. I don't think they adequately answered it. He gets to this character who is a previous character and it wasn't one of the best tenant moments yeah. this alien was basically she's like a giant she is a giant spider woman so she's human top and then giant spider <laughs> second half basically <laughs> not but, the way around you want that i mean any past spider's bad really but in the episode the actual tv show what happened was she had her all her eggs were in the core of the earth and she was trying, she was doing something to basically awaken them to then rise up and like devour everything around, like as uh, the, using the earth as kind of an incubator for eggs. And Tenon basically works it. So it's like, actually, I'm killing all your offspring. 
and that moment it was played not in a kind of like i've saved the day it was tenant like you could see this this doctor's face of like i'm killing a bunch of alien children to save the earth yeah and it it's immediately like you can tell it's weighing on him immediately so him going back to this character for me and other fans who saw that was like oh this is significant yeah even though that alien is not paid not gone back to or Mm. remembered but the ones who do are like oh this was a moment yeah um but the plot hole he goes to her and he says i need to find out the the secret the most valuable secret of the universe essentially and she's like well i'm uh, you believe that i'm your what is it i'm your imagination because you're hallucinating so how can i tell you something that i that you don't already know yeah and his response is well i choose to believe this is real yeah and then she's like all right fair enough i'll tell you for me, I was like, I don't think that was adequately explained. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think they even really tried to explain it. So No, I mean, that was the attempt one. at an explanation, wasn't it? Yeah, I choose to believe. Oh, well, fair enough then. <laughs> I mean, that's that's American political discourse <laughs> right there in a nutshell, isn't it? I don't want facts. <laughs> I, want to, uh, I want to be angry. <laughs> totally. But beyond that, that minor thing, then I forgot, I didn't think about it as much because immediately afterwards, the reveal is... The most valuable thing in the world that I'm looking for is the home planet of the Pyromaths. And again, the Pyromaths character, like, oh god, he's real. <laughs> is he coming here? Ah, <laughs> shitting on the story for so long, and they'd be like, oh my god, the, the character's <laughs> coming to kill us. So yeah, I thought that was a great ending. Yeah, yeah no, totally, it was I, great. I wasn't anticipating being so engrossed in the story, and then having that like, oh, it's that thing, like having that reaction, and it was brief. You know, it was only like 64 pages, wasn't it? Yeah. There was then a short story after that found like felt like a kind of tack on with Christopher Eccleston and Rose. And that I thought was like a cute um, play on the language translator of the TARDIS. Yeah. It was a little epilogue, really, wasn't it? Yeah. And I thought it was fun enough where they, it was a fun little reveal. Like we had several of them in the tenant story. There was one in the Eccleston story, which was... They we 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 want to try and talk in a way where the aliens don't understand us, but the translator is translating everything for them in their language. So we'll use homonyms, homonyms, yeah, homonyms, homonyms. And I thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and then they talk in rhymes of the words, but not actually. They they have great panels depicting what is happening from yeah. both sides. So it was a fun little add-on, but I think the main meat of this comic was the tenant story. Yeah, totally. And again, like. Yeah, totally. And it was fun. It was just good fun, wasn't it? Yeah. And again, like you said earlier, it wasn't especially deep or meaningful, like some comics that we've considered our favourites. But I had a great time reading this. And I think going in with lowish expectations well, definitely we, helped. Because uh, I think one of the things that we have realised is that outside of the Star Wars stuff, the tie-ins tend to not be very good. I think we had that with Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah, well... I've made this point before. Anything can be good. It's only a cash grab tie-in if it's uninspired or, you know. Yeah. But any artist or any writer can be given a thing, uh, given a work and say, hey, we need a comic for Doctor Who. Can you do us one? And and, and it's evident here that it was a good writer. Um, I think I think the benchmark by which I would judge something like this, having read the Rick and Morty stuff, is is this story of equality whereby if I saw it played out in the main series on the screen, would I think it was good? 
And I think this would have made a really great Doctor Who episode or a couple, you know, like a two or three episode arc or something. I agree with your opinion. I, I kind of feel maybe a bit differently in that I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm judging it more of like, is this a good comic in itself away from the TV show? And totally, there are things that happen here that couldn't have happened in the TV show. Yeah. And that makes it special because, as we've said, they use the medium well. If, if you imagine, if you would come into this not knowing any Doctor Who, like maybe you knew of Doctor Who very, very tangentially i genuinely was thinking tangentially i was like is that what is that the proper word for this very tangentially um would you read this comic do you think you would enjoy it to the same degree yeah because i'm not a whovian so i know a bit about doctor who it feels like the question of this podcast is is jamie actually a whovian or not turns out i've just got a massive like life-size tardis in my living room i think it's just called a house (laughs) (laughs) no if only my house was bigger on the inside um yeah no i mean yeah definitely like i enjoyed it i would definitely recommend like i said before if you if you've been into any doctor who i think this is quality doctor who adventures if you're already into that and again going into this i hadn't clocked that it was brand new um that definitely changes things because it felt to me as though it was from the early 2000s Mm. apparently Um, there's a lot of other great doctor stories like i said before there wasn't a huge indicator of like a variety of quality so it seems like they're quite consistent but i think the thing is doctor who is kind of timeless oh yeah especially i mean doctor who i would rank up there as like the television version of james bond yeah totally yeah no that's a really great comparison yeah it it does it does have a timeless quality to it doesn't it and how many other characters even like short of live action representation have this kind of new face regeneration like spanning eras kind of character Mm. because you could do that in in comics and literature and everything i don't think many have like well i think this is the interesting thing is that in comic book fans are very accustomed to seeing a million different iterations of the same character what doctor who did is find a really elegant charming interesting solution for having a series that spanned multiple generations and multiple main actors. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I don't know, I don't know if this is 100% accurate, I'm almost certain that it is. I think when the first Doctor Who series was very different from the Doctor as we know now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for example, the character is traveling with his grandchildren. Yes. And they've had to try, apparently they've attempted a few times to retcon explain that. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense to the Doctor as we know now. But apparently the first actor, I think he died and then they did the regeneration angle to bring in a new actor the regeneration wasn't always a thing yeah you're absolutely right Mm. they they it came out of necessity and it's because they wanted to be able to explain the reason there was a new actor but it's become a core part of the series now and I i think it's a really elegant solution i think the times where they actually do play into it and actually like in, in, explore this concept of a character who not only they don't just change physically they they become a new personality yeah and that incorporates the that i think that was so the actors don't have to do the previous actors interpretation exactly yeah 100 percent. and occasionally they do play with this like tenon when he was about to regenerate he had like a long run of like please don't be ginger (laughs) (laughs) he had a i mean when he first turned from eccleston to tenant he the first thing he said he like felt his tongue in his mouth he went "Hmm, new teeth But, (laughs) but there was a bar where when he was about to regenerate he was telling someone what was going to happen and they're like it sounds like you're just you're still going to be alive and he said well in a way it's a death because i i cease to be who i am now i become someone else but i 
I lose what I am right now and I feel like that part of me dies. And I think there's a larger exploration of like growing older and going through life and becoming a different person. And yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 allegorically quite rich, isn't it? And mm. again, like Bond is the obvious place, the obvious other place, like cinematic franchise where we see the same character portrayed by different actors. And I think every Bond has a slightly different personality. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Piers Brosnan's Bond wasn't quite as stoic and gritty as... Uh, Sean Connery? No, the new one. Oh, uh, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, the yeah. new one. He's been Bond for like 20 the years newest. or something. Um, and then Sean Connery's Bond was a bit more suave. And, you know, they're all a little bit different. I mean, Bonds, there's a running theory. I mean, it's, it's basically fact. Bonds tend to represent whatever the 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 scene of action films is or action stars yeah, and characters at the time. Like and Daniel Craig was very much a product of the Bourne series. Yes, totally. And and it's interesting because there's there's a Bond who only did one film. He was an American actor playing British, and he wore a hat. So he was in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'm I'm almost getting this. I there's a Simpsons joke which I think is why I can remember it. I can't There's a Simpsons joke where Pierce Brosnan plays an AI. Yeah. And they um they install them and it, like they're picking a voice for the AI. He goes, What about the best James Bond who ever lived? And Marge goes, Oh, but and it was the old one. And it, then you go, No, Pierce Brosnan. So on Her Majesty's Secret Service has George Lazenby in it? George Lazenby, yes. That's and the one. George Lazenby wears a hat for some of it. Um, because it's the late 60s and that was cool. And it was, you know, the perfect representation of what cool was at the time. Yeah. He almost looks a bit like Austin Powers. He has like frills on his shirt and stuff. Um, and yeah, and yeah, so Bond, Bond reflected whatever the kind of current climate of action films was. And I think that's perfectly represented in the transition between Piers Brosnan and Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig because Piers Brosnan's Bond became very bogged down in whatever M was giving him. Or Q. Yeah, it Whatever was the most Q. extreme aspects of action films. Yeah, it was lots of tech, and it was really tech-heavy. Although the GoldenEye wasn't that tech-heavy. I think they changed that as they were going through the Brosnans. Yeah, but then... GoldenEye feels like um, Brosnan's Casino Royale to Craig. Yeah, although Casino Royale is really interesting, because Casino Royale is actually the first Bond book. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't get a Casino Royale film until really late, because Woody Allen... <laughs> Scandal know it. Woody Allen scandal noted made Jimmy Bond, yeah, which was a comic adaptation of Casino Royale. And so when they were doing the serious Bond films, it was too soon after that for them to really play with that one. And so when they when they got to Daniel Craig and they were very quickly running out of material, they went, "Why not just redo Casino Royale?" Yeah, like we're doing a full reboot of this series. Why not start it right at the start? We'll have Le Chiffre, who is a great Bond villain. Um, that scene where Daniel Craig is tied to a chair with the bottom cut out and yep. they're swinging the rope straight from the book really brutal torture scene in the book like he really tears him up um he has a period of convalescence just like he does in the film like they did a really gritty nailed on adaptation of early bond stuff mm. um they even gave him a water ppk i mean they had to don't they that's always been the gun hasn't it uh no he had a different gun because i thought it was always the walter ppk no so i might be getting this wrong but he had he had a revolver originally. Bond had this revolver, and the revolver. There's a story where Bond dies, and the revolver jams, right, and that leads to his death. And then Ian Fleming says, "Well, actually, I want to reboot this and start writing more Bond books." 
and he brought a gun specialist in to say what would Bond be using. So I think originally he had a Walter PPK and then he went over to a Beretta or he had a Beretta and went to a Walter PPK. Yeah, this one, which is definitely not a PPK. That's a Beretta. But but the body looks very similar to a PPK. That's a Beretta. That's an Italian gun. So yeah, he originally had a Walter PPK and then he went over to a Beretta um, because they were like, he, you know, a, a spy wouldn't be using a big heavy six shooter yeah you'd be you'd be carrying the smallest gun that you can conceal in the most efficient way and then obviously in the films the beretta was always what he was using yeah but originally he had a big clunky six shooter which is fucking great like a cowboy <laughs> stick him up cowboy yeah yeah like imagine a spy <laughs> pulling out a cowboy gun stick him up cowboy That's <laughs> oh no we're not we're not getting we're not treading into that murky water we have to change the gun sean connery cannot stay cannot say six shooter too many times in one film or we'll get spit everywhere you know that that ian fleming did do stuff with the secret service though i've heard a lot of stuff it's um him and roald are the two people i keep hearing like this like oh they actually did stuff with the secret service and it's always like i'd have no idea what's true anymore roald dahl wrote a series of short stories called as you like it he was always also a honeypot for um women in like who were married to men of power or yes because he was a very good looking chap but yeah. he what he's one of the unconfirmed flying aces so is it confirmed or well so he was in the battle of Britain. to be a flying ace you had to take out six planes you had to take out six germans in your career there is one dogfight where he has four unconfirmed kills so everyone around him is like yeah rolled took out four mesher spits that day but for it to be a confirmed kill i think x number of pilots all need to have seen it Right. And it was a shit show of a dogfight. Because naturally, otherwise, someone would be like, yeah, I killed like 100. Yeah, but no, Roald Dahl is one of the unconfirmed flying aces. Roald Dahl okay. was a phenomenal pilot. Like, he was a really great pilot, and he wrote a he wrote a book about his time in the RAF as a Battle of Britain pilot, which is fucking fantastic. It's so good. I've got a paperback of it floating around the, here somewhere, as you'd imagine. Yeah. In the cave, in the book cave. Yeah, no, Roald Dahl was an absolute dude, mate. Like... Well- he may have been able to pilot a uh, plane in the war, but that doesn't mean he could pilot a TARDIS. And we <laughs> bringing it back bringing around. It back. I mean, I think we basically covered it. Um, great comic, I thought. And there'll be more Doctor Who stuff, so maybe we'll dip in again. Uh, definitely next Bond film that comes out, we'll do a Bond comic for sure. Are there any? Oh, I, I don't even know for sure, but I bet money. I bet good money that there is. Well, I was a huge fan of the Bond series as a kid. Like, as a high school kid, I read all of them i just i just watched most of the films so i've i've not seen all of the films i don't think but but it's purely because i was such a huge fan of the books and my dad and one of his friends sat me down and were like you love the bond books let's watch a bond film and i watched one and i was like yeah it's not as good as the books Hmm. although the there's this really interesting thing that's happening with the books at the moment because obviously we have different expressions for we have different barometers for the word interesting. No, but. I think you'll find this interesting, okay. and I think it's really relevant to what we do here. Um, so they're reissuing. Obviously, you know they're always reissuing the books, but there's been a wider conversation happening in some of the recent reissues where they've talked about taking some of the racist language out. So um, Bond, uh, Ian Fleming, very famously lived in Jamaica. Live and let die. And there's this whole thing where there's a lot of uses of not only the N-word that we would use now, but also some of the N-words that were quite popular in the 1960s. Right. And there is a, there's this kind of plot point in the book whereby there's a mass Chinese immigration into Jamaica. 
And obviously there's some, you know, a lot of mixed race people coming out of that. And he coins a new slur for people of mixed black and Chinese heritage, which I will not say on air because it's pretty gross. But Bond was like, I need to dedicate mental effort on this spy gig to creating a slur. Yeah, yeah, literally. And so they're now talking about, well, do we take some of that out? And I kind of think that should we should we change older fiction to make it more palatable to a modern audience or do we leave it intact uh, out of the interest of preserving this stuff my general stance with stuff like this i think most reasonable people are are similar um i think the stuff should be left intact but with a warning at the start i think fully i agree with and you. i think warner brothers have done that with a lot of old looney tunes stuff and Disney uh, have done it with all of their old films. But specifically, what they say at the beginning is they say, there's some stuff here that's, you know, obviously viewed very differently nowadays. We've left it in uh, with this warning because to take it out would be to act like it never happened. Yeah, Which totally. is the worst thing you could do. But I think this fits into a wider conversation that we've been having a lot when we've read older stuff, like The Boys, for instance. Yeah. I think also the, the capitalist in me, I think I kind of playing both sides here. You could also release a censored version and say, hey, the, the the original version with the warning is still available if you really want that. But also, here's a censored version if you'd prefer that. I think it's really different if you've got a living creator. So if you have a living creator who looks at a piece of work that they made in a different historical context and they say, I just fully do not agree with what I did 50 years ago. So I'm going to myself re-edit this text with an editor and we're going to put out a new version and I'm going to say, look, I acknowledge that this old version exists, but this is how I would like my work to be perceived now because I there are different cultural standards and I believe that what I did back then was wrong, right? I think that's one thing. But when you've got a long dead creator, I don't think it's right for us to go back and retroactively, posthumously change their work because it's theirs and it exists in the medium they put it out in but also then you've got people who are like well i want to read a bond story but i'm black and this is fucking offensive and so i i'm i'm I, you know i'm looking at it from both sides and i do kind of fall down on one side of the argument but i can see the other side as well just do what i do just play both sides and then you always come out on top no you never come out on top <laughs> that's the point <laughs> but you also tell everyone that you're playing both sides have you seen that always sunny yeah, of course. <laughs> yes. It's my favorite. Whenever the ATR comes up, I always do like the hand gesture, like, I'm playing both sides. <laughs> you're not meant to tell people you're playing both sides. For people for people listening in black and white, um, Ryan is gesturing with his uh, fingertips forwards. Because mm, you're, you're getting across a point. But also the, the funniest part is then when one of the other characters walks in, you go, Mac, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm playing both sides. Like, <laughs> it's just this instinctive like, explanation. Funny story about, by the way, uh, this is one of my dads. When he was a kid, he was watching snooker with his dad on their black and white te telly. And <laughs> which ball's a which? <laughs> well, this is the thing. The commentator said, he was going for the green. For anyone watching in black and white, the green's the one next to the pink. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good joke. Apparently it happened. Apparently that actually happened. And I think that's fantastic. I was talking to someone the other day, um, and they were talking about like, how there's always like jokes. Like They, they had a mis conception that all jokes had to have like a, a victim if that makes sense yeah and just in a very um contextual way that someone is the butt of the joke and i heard a joke and i i knew that wasn't the case but i couldn't think of any examples at the time and then i was literally listening to a podcast and someone talked about a joke from oh police squads tv show which was right. uh, which was um uh, uh, naked gun before it was yeah. naked gun and one of the jokes in there is uh leslie nielsen walks into a crime scene and 
a guy in there's a guy at the crime scene he goes who are you and how did you get in there and the guy goes i'm a locksmith and i'm a locksmith (laughs) (laughs) and again i was like I needed this example when I was having the conversation because that's a perfect example of a, a victimless joke, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. still quite funny. Yeah, it is um, really funny. One last point on the whole Bond thing. Yeah, which go for I was going to mention. In terms of old racist Bond moments, mm. I don't think, in terms of the films especially, none peak as high as Sean Connery, his Bond, going undercover as an Asian man. Oh, yeah. But it is the worst part, because people look at that and go, well, that's bad, because he literally gets prosthetic eyelids put over his own yeah. and, and uh, a wig. And I think they they just they like add like makeup for his skin color and everything. So he goes through all this and then he, the reveal is he comes out and it's meant to be like, oh, my God, you look exactly like them. And it, now obviously nowadays, we're like he he's looks like Sean Connery with stuff on his face. Like, that's it. Sean Connery in Asia face. And the wor- but the worst part of it all, in my opinion is then as soon as he meets the person who he's putting on all this makeup for to blend in so he's not recognized, they immediately go, ah, James Bond. And it's like, <laughs> who wrote this? <laughs> like, you what did was something super racist and there wasn't even a point to it. Like, if he'd gotten away with it, that at least in the, in the story of the world, they'd be like, I don't agree with this, but it gets results. It didn't even get results. <laughs> It was the most pointless, like, should we be racist for no reason? <laughs> but put a lot of effort into it. <laughs> so if you can find that film, give it a watch. It's hilarious. Oh, uh, that's awful. But I have, think I've ever told you about the most egregious blackface I've ever seen. I've not heard this story. Oh but... my god. So it's from I think it's either Norwegian or Finnish stars in their eyes. Oh my god. And this woman, this very... Don't they have, like, celebrations and, like, festivities with that use blackface or something? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that in European countries. We have yeah. one as well. Um, some of the Morris dancers will black up. But, like... As they... if you need more of a reason to be up a Morris dancer. Well, they and, they, and, they, and the people who do it are really ardent in doing so because they say it's, a, it's like about coal mining the worst hill to die on is anything related to morris dancing yeah totally but yeah no it's about they say it's about more they, they say it's about coal mining and the, the black is meant to represent coal it's not a racial thing still weird um no so this woman comes out on you know what you remember stars in your eyes yeah, right? yeah tonight matthew i will be for anyone who doesn't know what stars in your eyes is you would they would dress you up as a pop star and you would either sing or lip sync to their song televised karaoke because they would sing I no think. they'd lip sync oh well that's even worse so you'd you'd come out dressed up as an artist and you'd lip sync but this one's offensive on every level because they dress her up as stevie wonder jesus christ and she's not blind but somebody leads her to the keyboard as if she is blind <sighs> and she's in full blackface and then she sits down at this keyboard and you know like that very very recognizable sp- specific the facial head, the heads the head yeah. the head swing that stevie wonder does when he's singing which is like super iconic you know just part of his aesthetic and the way he performs she's doing that whole fucking thing man they lead her out as if she can't see and then she sits down at a piano and spends five minutes pretending to be stevie wonder and it is the worst thing i've ever seen <laughs> honest and like it's on fucking youtube man you can find that shit it is awful i love that i love the thinking of like and be like oh so you want to lip sync to to dv wonder then like yeah yeah it's like all right cool and they're like all right so when am i blacking up it's like oh are we going that level okay fine it's like who's gonna leave me out it's like 
oh right <laughs> like yeah every single thing just makes it worse oh right? we're doing this and this like, <laughs> i was gonna say i saw one with i saw a stars in your eyes with someone being freddie mercury right uh, and i'm not gonna make like the explicit joke but the the premise that came to mind was there's a lot of things i bet that person did not do to get into the character of playing freddie mercury <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah, yeah like yeah, you sorry. don't have to just because it's part of the real life person you don't have to do as well to bloody karaoke or lip sync yeah and i'm like do you know what if you if you're a white person and you want to lip sync to stevie wonder like it's a questionable life choice but go for it but don't black up <laughs> like you just you just don't need to black up but realistically i i saw this thing by an irish bloke said and he said that like one of his irish uncles had said it which is if you're gonna get arrested for nicking a horse you might as well fuck it as well <laughs> and that's right. the thing in it like she fucking like i mean i don't agree with it i think it's a bit gross but she fucking went there i mean it'd be worse <laughs> if she half-hearted it after all that <laughs> yeah she just kind of bopped out you know yeah. what i mean didn't even put the effort in this like you've already <laughs> if this was 20 years later you'd be out of the job but yeah totally totally i think the, the expression you were looking for was in for a penny and for a pound yeah but if you're gonna get done for nicking a horse you might as well fuck it is much funnier I mean, bestiality is another thing. Uh, right. Well, you you're gonna have fun writing the description for this episode. Um, I just I was thinking that, and I think I'm just gonna do Doctor Who and all that, and then from a time code, it's gonna be and James Bond because he's British as well. Wait, well <laughs> that's done. gonna be it, isn't it? And then the blackface is just a huge surprise for everyone. If you've stuck to the end of the episode, you get this <laughs> little surprise. So thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Um, I hope you've had a wonderful time. Um, we make shorts. They appear on YouTube and TikTok, just under the same name as the podcast. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that. If you want to send us an email. And what kind of review do we want? Five star, always. Baby. Yes. Five star, baby. <laughs> um, if you can leave us a five star review and then the text is just baby, all yeah. caps, three exclamation marks, you'd make my day. Absolutely. So thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye.